Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 50 of the Design Exec Club Town Hall. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and I'm joined here by some of the smartest minds that I know. We're going to be talking about standards today, and it's not standards as you would think. It's actually about the idea that standards are the values, the purpose, the guidelines, the missions, the, the technical aspects that we have. That's how we actually work out how society works. And we're going to try to pull some standards apart. We're trying to go put them back together because standards give us an efficient way to move through society but over the last couple of years we seem to be more polarized rather than working out how to find that common common working ground in there. Um, uh, Will Knight I want to throw across to you you and I had a conversation the other day after watching Seaspiracy and we were looking at the standards that are on um, tuna cans and maybe the standards, those standard marks about safe fishing, ethical fishing, no dolphins got hurt, no sea life got hurt, maybe they don't represent what we thought that they did. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I think a lot of the conversation about standards is, is on language. Uh, and of course, language is interpreted and utilised by brands. And actually, one of the points that that really interesting film brought up was that the trust placed in a brand or a logo is extraordinary so if it says this is tuna this is a dolphin friendly tuna you're just disposed to believe it but as it turns out as the film sort of takes you through it exposes the fact that the fishing industry uh, essentially sponsors that standard mark and there is no standard behind it it's really, um, it's really a falsification. So there's a very kind of um, interesting conversation about what these things really stand for. What, what is a standard? What do we truly believe? And what, what is it as a society we should be really focused on? Now, I, I was trying to be really polite because I know you guys have gone through Brexit, but I was immediately when you said that there is no standard, I was thinking really one of the things that got the people in the UK so upset over the last 30 years has been the standard setting process and that the pork sausages that you had weren't allowed to be called pork sausages because of the way the standards were set. So we've seen standards rip societies apart, but then if we go to Philip Johnson, you and I were talking about things like the CE mark and the TUV mark. As a consumer, it gives you really good confidence that you're not going to get electrocuted if it's got a CE mark. If it's a bit of medical equipment that's got a CE mark, you're not going to die from being in it. And if it's a mechanical thing that's got a TUV mark on it, you're probably not going to get crushed by it. They're, they're, they were the good standards of Europe, as against maybe the pork sausage one was a, a pork sausage too far. I'm not, not quite sure how apocryphal the pork sausage is, but it's a sentence I never thought I'd say. Um, but, um, you know, certainly I think <clears throat> you're, you're right. And I think, I think this... Um, follows on from uh, Will's comment about uh, the, the trust that exists. But I do think one of the issues that arises um, is is how people are meant to know what are real standards. So what are standards applied by you know government bodies and, and what are, um, I suppose, voluntary schemes that, that people can sub subscribe to. Um, certainly, I'm, I'm aware of a, a certain number of... Uh, um, marks that appear on packaging that uh, you know companies can simply pay for um, and be allowed to display those marks but those marks in themselves convey a certain approach or a certain um, certain set of uh, uh, criteria um, that perhaps aren't necessarily um, applied for or, or, or prerequisites for that particular brand so I do think um, you know getting that 
understanding of what is a real standard and what's a kind of um, a, a fabricated standard, I think, is is pretty important. Yeah, Kirsty, I want to go across to you because the team at Brisbane and Good, you, you've got a large amount of your portfolios about things that either um, fly, float or travel at high speed along rails. And so there's going to be a whole bunch of standards which are not uh, nice to have, they're mandatory, but then when it comes to the, um, say, communication and information products that you put out there, they don't have anywhere type the standards that we have for mechanical systems. I mean, I, I was just uh, thinking about what Philip was saying then. And I think, I mean, it, it largely depends on the audience. I mean, we work in kind of highly constrained environments um, where we have to meet safety standards in terms of the materials we specify um, and the, you know, the constraints are around engineering for people's safety. And, you know, those standards exist for a very good reason. Um, and I think, you know, it's, you know, it's not to be questioned that they have to be met because everything has to go through rigorous testing to make sure they're meeting safety standards. But I think, you know, when we're looking at something which is more consumer um, related, then, you know, there is, I suppose, for consumer to trust in a mark, there has to be kind of communication around, um, you know, understanding of what, you know, what is being measured and how things are being judged. But it is interesting to go back to something like, um, you know, the, the kite mark where that was communicating, I suppose, a judgment around what, what was good design or what is good design. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to explore. What do the public understand by good design? And is that something that's important to communicate when we're, particularly when we're looking at the public realm um, and, you know, decisions that are being made uh, on a more um, regional or governmental basis, um, which will directly affect people's lives, so around public buildings, et cetera, as opposed to kind of consumer goods. Yeah. Um, but just going back to kind of, you know, the need to uh, meet standards in, you know, a, a highly regulated environment, in a way we need, and I'll be interested to see, hear what um, Claire, for example, might have to say about this, but now, you know, we need more um, standards for sustainability around materials that are specified or ways in which we design things. And I think to really move and make progress, we do need some pro government intervention of some kind around standards to ensure that we are going to meet, you know, targets um, by 2030. I think what one of the things I've noticed over the uh, last 12 months through the pandemic has been that the politicians who had disassembled protocols of how we do things then found themselves caught that even the language they were trying to go use about, uh, about a situation they were unfamiliar with, there was no framework or structure for them to talk about it. So every country had a different traffic light system. Um, they were basically trying to mean the same thing, but they didn't interface. Um, when they were talking about it was phase one or stage three or step two, uh, the language was confused everywhere. And 
And we recently did a spotlight with uh, David uh, Keach. Oh, sorry, Keach, I should say. Um, and um, uh, David was mentioning that he went and he did an infographic series about the government rollouts and those plans, particularly for his Japanese clients who didn't understand the nuance of the of the way that the British government was explaining it. And so there's these efficiencies in getting to the point that we have very simple messages. And, Claire, we're, I'm going to throw it across to you in a moment because, you know, you've now got to focus a bit around sustainability and around the recycling side. And we we know that there's that the even the idea of um, is something compostable. It's actually is it industrial compostable or is it backyard compostable because you get to different temperatures. So really, what we need to have is a compostable seventy degrees and a compostable one hundred and seventy degrees symbol, so that we know in, where do we divert this compost to. Are you finding that that's part of the confusion is that there aren't those standards or is it just people are still having a lot of rhetoric around whether they should be doing things that are sustainable? Well, the standards are varied, obviously, across the globe, as we as you've said, and as we know, um, I think I, I think. The, the idea of uh, of um, sustainability is wide, isn't it? It's not just environmental; it's social, it's cultural, it's 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 economic uh, based too, economics based, um, and the education around it is is sort of scattered, and um, we don't have enough we don't have enough uh, information. I think shared information globally to really uh, impact uh, decision making at this stage, but we should have. Uh, and I think that this pandemic, everyone's sort of paused for purpose and thought about, hopefully, thought about what's essential, necessary, what's wasteful. And one of the clear indicators is the linear economy and the fact that we need to shift from that to a circular economy, okay. whereby whatever we have floating around, whatever we're producing, using is has been used before and can be repurposed and used again. And so, you know, there's so many areas of sustainability that are, are yet to be um, really, really discussed at a deep level. And I think in all cases, whenever we get onto new subjects about, you know, sa saving the planet, most governments will, will um, you know, have their own little sort of uh, spin on, on what needs to be said, as opposed to a deeper dive into, you know, more self-imposed standards from business from a business perspective. So, making sure that people are businesses are values led um, and not just checking boxes, the least line of resistance to get accreditation for whatever it may be. That's slightly a scattered answer, but it's a subject that requires almost, uh, you know. It's a topic in itself, isn't it, sustainability? It, it is, and, and part of the reason why I wear a T-shirt that says Never Simple is that some of these things look like they should be able to have an immediate uh, binary answer. It's this or it's that, or even a five-grade you know, graduation scale. They don't. Mm -hmm. they, they've got complexities and dilemmas around them. And we used to have people who worked in government and worked inside corporations who worked on these standards and worked on how did you make the interface between these very complex matters 
come together. When the accountants took over, they decided that they couldn't see the value in that and somebody else should be doing it, and therefore we lost some of that. So so I think that's really interesting. And, Kirsty, I'm going to come back to you um, later on because I want to talk to you about because you, you took a um, airline brand recently and you had to go and actually create the standards of how they would present themselves. And that to me is interesting because those corporate standards are something that we work on all the time. Um, John, I want to throw across to you because you know you're working in the space where you're taking some um, uh, apocryphal buildings and you're turning around and making them into gorgeous and amazing spaces. You must have some standards that you get hit there of heritage overlays. There's going to be building codes. The building isn't compliant to start off with. Mm. So you you walk yeah. every day. Yeah, we do. Um, I, I just what, what Philip's talked about, what Kirsty's talked about, what Claire's talked about, uh, all of that comes into our world. And, and I think um, the standards for us, there is, um, I guess, what you would say, uh, if you take the sort of sort of three, I guess, three sets of standards, there's the external standards that have sort of that legal and technical remit, which we've just talked about the confusion around, is it seventh degree compost or whatever it is, but their technical, I guess, bodies like building regs, bridging European standards, there's accessibility standards like design for access. And then there's, you know, of course, sustainability and wellbeing standards like BRIAM, World Certification and the FSC certification and that kind of thing. Um, but then there's also, as well as that, there's, there's peer-to-peer standards as well. So quality of design, and and, and that and, and that's kind of I guess it's measured in sort of press coverage and you know in industry magazines. But quite relevant for you, Mark, it's measured in awards and and that. And I think what what's quite interesting the fact that you're asking this question about uh, standards. You have you know this sort of international worldwide program of awards that are all linked and and, and that in itself uh, creates an international design standard if you know what I mean because no matter what anybody says winning an award is a great feeling because you've pitched it in you've gone against your peers and you've won and you've come up smiling and you want to do that again and again and again so every time you increase that standard of design so I guess that's, that's the kind of the second uh, sort of set of standards that we have, but I think the third and fundamentally the most important, and going back to what Claire said about it's not just ticking boxes, it's about actually doing it. And that's, it's personal. It's your personal and your corporate standards. Um, you know, it, 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 there's, culture, there's cultural standards that company founders and leaders set that impact every day of your working life and everything that you do. Um, and, you know, ensure that the standard you're delivering to a client, how you answer the phone, you know, is, is exceptional. Um, and that's about having a vision and making a difference. Um, but there's actually your own personal standards and the principles that you have personally and, um, and standing by those when some people don't, don't actually see those as strong uh, principles and standards. And, um, you know, they're highly important because they affect your world, they affect your client's world, but also everybody here has suppliers. Everybody has suppliers that work that they partner with to deliver projects. And they have to have the same really high standards that you have because 
essentially they're standing shoulder to shoulder with you next to your clients and ultimately what they deliver with you has got to be the same high standards as you. So I think um, so I think um, those there's those kind of three I guess ways to look at standards but um, for me they're a bit of a cold standard it's kind of a shorthand that uh, that people can rely on each other on products, on the buildings that they go into to make sure that they don't fall down. And it's about trust and it's about credibility. Um, but there's no, whilst we do have standards set, there's a constant, there's a constant, constant learning curve of standards. And, you know, if, if you set a standard or if you're with a client or somebody that sets a standard, you always remember it. You always remember that person that set a particular standard. So it's so important. And there's so many examples that I can think of on a daily basis where I've been inspired by a client or supplier or whoever that has made me think, well, I need to reappraise what I think about this particular thing because they've just set a higher standard and a benchmark than I have. And um, so I think that's, that's kind of my, my views on it. I think there is, you know, there's that, there, there is confusion around set standards, but I think fundamentally, most important, I think it's your own personal standards that you have to adhere to. And what's really great there is, is and it, it's beautiful that you mentioned the Driven by Design Awards as a, as a hallmark standard there, and, and you know that's part of what we're trying to do. But there's a difference between a hallmark standard and something that is a parametric min, minimum standard. And I don't think we're particularly well versed in understanding, and I'll go back to uh, to the kite mark um, uh, that you brought up, Kirsty. That you know it was about is this good design? And what we did was we we often put a parametric lens on good design, where it should actually be about standards and is it actually you know is it in the funnel which is heading up? Because over time that changes. And so what people were doing is saying, well, I disagree that it's good. And you're saying, well, that's really good. In every form of intellectual pursuit, there's discourse that takes place. But what we should be doing is focusing on this was the best that was around at this point of time and the peers said this was what good. So there's the new benchmark. Let's go above it. And, and that, to me, is what award programs do, which is very different to, say, clear what we're talking about with in the sustainability space. There's going to be actually be some parameters in there, which is there's a minimum dioxin level that we will go for, or should I even say a maximum dioxin and a minimum. Yeah. Then there's actually how do we actually talk about that we're cleaning it up, or there's a minimum emissions, there's a maximum emissions. Um, I look at things... In particularly around sustainability, that and one of the what Will was bringing up about the idea of the mark of this is you know safe tuna. It really should be that there's a graduation there, which is we've got 100% certainty it's safe tuna. There's a likelihood it's safe tuna. There's an intent that it's safe tuna, or somebody's just paying for the mark, and we and we don't have that. And it can be as simple as you know we've all got on our phones that there's the mail icon and next to it is how many messages we've got, that popcorn message that's there, it can qualify. We can go do that with the same with uh, toxic chemicals. If you're a fireman and you go to a go to a site, there is actually an international standard that says the chemicals in here are a level three threat or a level five threat and they're this sort of chemicals and that's, that's standard around the world because chemicals move around the world. We're finding that the AstraZeneca 
um, uh, vaccine that's out is now spreading around the world and there's some challenges in it that have to do with some very complex platelets and the way that blood clotting works. But what we do there is we go for standards about what's what's a platelet count, how big is the thrombosis. These things are actually very well measured. But when it comes to design, a lot of it is actually relative, not absolute. And I think that's where we need to understand, are we talking about an absolute pursuit? Is it a relative pursuit? If we're talking about a better future, how far, how long will it take us to get to that benchmark of better that we're talking about? And how do we accelerate that? But culture wars are about trying to divide us on those those interpretive standards and then break our culture down where we wind up fighting with each other rather than working out how to agree with each other. And to me, I, you know, if I said there was one thing I wanted to make sure that, we, that we're working on around a better future is how do we get rid of some of the cultural things? So, Simon, I want to go across to you and I want to actually focus here. You, you've, um, in the last 18 months, you've picked yourself up, you've moved to a totally different um, uh, culture, you've been trying to work out how to fit in, you've been trying to work out how to survive during a pandemic, and no doubt you've found that a bunch of the standards you brought with you in your kit bag as, as you left the UK and that you wound up in France um, were totally useless to you and you've had, to, and you've had some realisations there. Has that been interesting for you, just saying, oh, gosh, I'm not in Kansas anymore, it's not the same? Um, interesting. I think that's not quite the word I would use. Um, in fact, when I was told that the subject was about standards, it kind of wanted me to run or make me want to be rebellious. That whole word in itself. Please do. Please do. An anathema. If you're a creative person, you think it was constraining, restrictive, and absolutely goes against everything natural that you want to do. Um, so. Um, anyway, it's been very interesting listening to what everyone's saying because you're talking about um, things that, you know, are about safety, regulations and those sorts of things. But, yes, you're right. I have relocated to for the south of France and it has been a huge track challenge, extremely stressful. I'm now going to be um, going back to the UK because of things that haven't haven't happened here um yeah i did have certain expectations and it's interesting you mentioned astrazeneca because i had my first jab last week and i've never felt so ill in my life um i'm just about getting over it now um and there was a certain expectation that okay it's going to be helpful you have to go through this process perhaps because you want to kind of protect yourself um and everybody has a different reaction and i had a quite severe reaction so I think, yes, it's it's interesting, like you say, um, trying to find common ground because that's exactly what I've been trying to do in France. I don't think I've found it. The biggest barrier for that has been language um, and feeling quite alienated because I don't speak French. Um, the situation with the pandemic has just made it even worse and the way it's been handled here in particular has, has even made that to, to the point where we think actually... Um, life's too short we want to go back to London and regroup and review we may come back to France at some point so it's been extremely disappointing um, but I'm not I don't regret that we've done it and um, yes it's um, it's taken a lot of energy a lot of time um, it's taken a lot away from me in a way so in some ways yes despite what I said about being rebellious I'm quite looking forward to certain things being 
of a of familiar and a familiar standard in terms of you know whether the way things are done or how you go and interact with other people or just certain expectations when you do um you know go to a building site for instance this is a really good example exactly next to where we are living right now there's um there was some there is some land and 25 trees were just cut down it seemed randomly but there's like 40 trees 25 those cut down there's uh, olive trees and oak trees and there didn't seem to be any kind of notification or any sensitivity or anything like that and that alarmed me because i thought perhaps I presume too wrongly that there would be some sort of standard as to how that happens in a residential area. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then on the adjacent um, part of the land next to it, they've started building and literally um, they've, they turned up with a, a lorry dug a big hole. They measured dug a big hole, a, a concrete pourer turned up. And I said to my partner, I said, why have they not got any sort of, um, signage, there's no portaloo, there's no kind of indication that this is going to become a building site where they're building a house. And I would expect that if I was in the UK and I've become used to that. And so it's interesting how, you know, I've brought my own sort of expectations to another country thinking, well, why is it not the same? Because it's a weird in Europe, mm-hmm. no matter what you think about Brexit, you know, lo- geographically, we're still very close. Um, so that has been quite an eye opener. And it makes me want to run away. It makes me want to go back to what I know because I feel a bit of safety in a way in that there are certain things that are done in the UK that I feel now, perhaps having been, you know, taken my step back and having looked now looking at it from, from across the water where I feel, yes, we do have very good um, standards about perhaps buildings and they can be absolutely improved in a huge way, but there is, there is room to have that discussion. And I think that because I don't speak French, I can't speak to those people who've literally just turned up and, and started hacking around on the land and say, what are you doing? And where's the regulations and what, what process have you been through? So, um, yeah, it's, it's been really quite emotional in some ways because it's sad to see trees being chopped down without any knowledge or any instruction or any note of what's going to happen to that and then you see building work happening as well and you're thinking well they're using you know concrete it's not the best environmentally you know material and and you think oh in in a year's time this whole area that i'm living in now which was supposed to be a sort of idyllic french retreat is just going to be a housing estate where they've just not even thought about the infrastructure they've not thought about the landscaping or the drainage or anything like that and i feel it's quite sad so um so yeah i i kind of got mixed feelings about standards i think they're very good to have they always need to be refined and re um analyzed and not taken for granted i haven't seen the seaspiracy um film but i definitely want to see it now um and and you're right well that you kind of read a packet or packaging or labeling and you trust it you expect it to be what what it says on the tin but more and more i'm i'm less trusting actually and i'm more questioning and i think this experience of being in france has made me much more alert to that um which is kind of sad in some ways um but perhaps it's a good thing that we just don't take things for granted 
Yeah, and thank you for just being so raw and honest there because you started Sorry. off saying it. No, 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 I love it because you started off and saying, well, as a creative person, I hate standards. And then as you went along, it's like, but these standards weren't applied and this standard wasn't there. And, and you're going, that's right, we we hate standards, but we love standards. And, and then there's things that we know democracy is actually, it's both the best form of government and the worst form of government. At least we understand the limitations of democracy. And so, so there, it, like in your little piece there, we've summarised a huge amount of the dilemmas of standard. Philip, please. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I think it is, uh, you know, fascinating to hear about Simon's experience and how international standards uh, vary. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I would draw attention to is um, perhaps some of the international standards on apprenticeships and, uh, you know, whether or not a qualified electrician, you know, for example, in the UK is a, is a very different uh, standard of electrician from a qualified electrician uh, in Germany or, uh, as I would know, in Denmark. I think it's a four-year apprenticeship you need to get that kind of qualification so i think those standards uh, are interesting in terms of the fact that they are um rigorously enforced um and i think also one of the things that, that struck me i think it was something that john mentioned about um you know principles and standards and and i don't want to go into to too much of the detail because i think it's it's you know maybe not appropriate for for the conversation but of course in the uk you know we've, we've seen what happened with grenfell tower where um, I think the company that uh, supplied the cladding was actually responsible for certifying the fireproof nature of the cladding itself and you know so that was uh, you know a complete uh, a disaster in terms of, of standards and I think you know I think ultimately you know Kirsty's right you need more government uh, intervention to actually ensure that that what standards there are rigorously applied and that people know the difference between a, a voluntary scheme and and the kind of standards that exist in you know areas like aerospace um you know where it is very much a life and death uh, situation now I, I in the last week or so yeah, please kirsty go ahead yeah um, i was uh, just going to add to that though i think you know possibly what simon might dislike about standards as well is that they are um, set in time and so uh, you know I suppose in some ways rightly so but one of the I suppose uh, tensions comes when we're um, trying to develop a new or innovative product and so it's very much about kind of collaboration with um, the bodies that are setting standards to recognize that sometimes those standards need to evolve to accommodate new innovation. And, you know, a lot of these, uh, these areas are about continued collaboration and the ability to have conversations and to be open. So, you know, the best conversations come, you know, from, you know, perhaps when we work with engineers and that sometimes is kind of stereotypical a scenario might be, oh, well, the engineers are gonna say no. Um, but actually, if you are open to working collaboratively, you can get to a much better place because working together, you, you deliver more. And I think, you know, within this area of, you know, developing new materials or um, yeah, developing any kind of new innovations, in a way, you need to do that hand in hand with 
bodies who are creating standards so that you are taking them with you know with you uh, so working together I think is key in this area yeah and and I think there's you know we we know that um, uh, uh, Prince Philip died in the last uh, in the last week and as an Australian we, we're a, huge, a lot of us are huge Republicans and it wasn't until I actually got involved with the design awards in London that I learned about a group called the King's Fund and and what I learned about the King's Fund was this isn't the first time in history that the politicians have failed the population and the King's Fund goes back to a period in time where the king, through after the Magna Carta, didn't have the capability to interfere with the parliamentarians and what they were doing. But he noticed that the people, the, the population, weren't getting the type of medical care that they probably should have got. And so by creating the King's Fund, there was this antagonist group that was talking about what is best practice in medical and health care and that they were shining a torch on the fact that the politicians weren't funding a health system that was looking after the population. And so in a way, by having agitators who were bringing up well-formed arguments and evidence-based material, they were able to force the politicians to turn around and actually raise their standards. And we see that happening with all sorts of non-for-profit groups that, that, that that's continued on. And I think the King's Fund, to me, is why, to me it changed my entire interpretation of the, of the monarchy. As an Australian, it comes from convict stock uh, and Irish stock. We kind of hated the monarchy. Um, I then learned, okay, maybe there's something about them where I've got to admit they've done something good. But then my friends I was drinking with were telling me that they're all bad and I'm going, I'm in conflict. But that thing about having well-formed groups that can turn around and actually make a proposition and say, here's the standard that we should get to and lobbying that to government is a very important thing to do. And, you know, the, the British Design Council, they had that role there of saying, here's some standards that we should be looking at. It would appear that uh, the Design Council at the moment might be in a bit of a hiatus on working out what the aspirations of design should be, but that doesn't mean it's over. It just means they need to, they, their imagination needs to be actually excited a bit more to say there's a bigger and bolder scheme that they have to go have there. Um, the creative standards that you mentioned, Simon, I find very interesting. I was heavily involved in the early days of the interactive um, industry, digital interactive design. And the periods between 91 and 94, basically most of the interactive design that would happen then will never be seen because it was shite. You know, it was, it was terrible. And what it was about was people were saying, oh, we're not constrained by the television format and we're not constrained by this. And it wound up being creative mud because they did non-linear video editing, non-video, non-linear video storytelling, and nobody could actually have a shared experience. I think we even saw recently that you had uh, Black Mirror in their Brandis Hatch. They did a non-linear story that had different endings and it really didn't appeal to the, uh, the population. What we want to do is go to the water cooler with each other and say, wasn't that a great ending? I thought that Jeremy didn't need to die. And we, all, and we all agree whether Jeremy needed to die or not. That's the joint moment that we have as a population. It's like a, a football game. Imagine if the, we all could have a different ending in the football game that we're watching. That it, it, it takes away the tension. So, so we saw that interactive world wasn't good, but then I reflected on the television commercials that I was making and the music video clips. They were constrained by the 
by the um, size of the screen. But the creativity that was in there was unbounded. So sometimes as creators, we think that constraints are actually our enemy. We're actually often there, the thing that really drives us to future creativity. And those constraints often come around by standards. So I, th- so I can see there's this push and pull of the standards. I, I get what you mean. It's like, don't tell me what I can't do. But actually, if everybody can't do it, then we do things like John's doing, which is how do you create an amazing space inside the standards that you have to apply yourself to? Yeah. Will, I think your, your mic's off. You're obviously itching to um, bid in here. Tell us what you've got to say. Uh, well, a, a couple of things. I thought Kirsty's point about the inflexibility of standards, because often you think about how standards are negotiated in and around kind of industrial settings, be it through uh, associations or relationships with government. You know, you're often battling just to get to a bare minimum. You know, a standard is a kind of a point from which quality uh, starts from in, in a way. Um, and I think there is a, you know, there is obviously a problem that Kirsty probably faces much more than I, I uh, do in and around how do you innovate? How do you push those standards? When technology, when materials change, how does, how does that kind of shift things? And I, I suspect this pace of kind of setting standards really lags behind in terms of supporting that. Um, so I think that was an interesting, interesting point there. Uh, and then I, I was also just thinking about, you know, your comments about the monarchy and that sort of, in a way, the kind of external influence that can be positive uh, and obviously, the, the, you know, the kind of reflections on the role that the monarchy has has, has played, certainly over the last 99 years, are, are really interesting in the investment in institutions, in opportunity, uh, social justice. Uh, all of those sorts of areas are, are really interesting, but they haven't been provided by government. They would come and they would go if they were just down to government. And so to sort of slightly update, look at the kind of corporate side of things, I just the thing that runs through my mind is B Corp, um, which I understand is an American um, uh, organization that, that sets standards around how corporates should uh, behave and um, you know, source, recruit, um, and their commitments to essentially uh, sustainability and social value as well. And, and, and again, I, I, you know, as I understand it, it's a really interesting and rigorous process. I was on, on a call with someone yesterday who's just become a B leader uh, to help organizations take on those standards. But, uh, but again, it's not something that would kind of be picked up by government and it would be terribly difficult to initiate. So I think corporate, the, the corporate side, as well as kind of, um, you know the non-government side, it, you know, is responsible for setting those standards and directing uh, how we how we behave. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that if, if I had a started the design awards and it was a government-sponsored organisation, the gov- the government would have changed over the last fifteen years three times. You know, two or three times. Therefore, the sponsorship motivations would have changed. So it's, a, it's like you were saying, and, and even if I think, Will, going back into a previous era that when you were with the 100, uh, 100% design, the Media 10 guys, they're in the same space. They've, they've got a different platform. It's in a different cycle. And there's a benevolence that comes out and saying we want to do something which is actually about helping, the, helping an industry, helping a community. And I, that's why I started the idea about the Better Future Framework, you know, I'm having all these conversations with people. We've got a longitudinal, non-governmental basis. 
of how do we actually talk about having a stronger economy, having a sustainable environment and having social equity. And it's interesting, the social equity one means different things in different markets, but it still is about in, inequity, regardless where you go. It's just, and, and like the environment, you know, Simon, you're talking about um, the type of building materials that were being used and the, and the trees that were being taken down. And that's actually the environmental concerns there. When we yeah. were looking at Seaspiracy, they're talking about, you know, the environmental impact of uh, by interrupting the food cycles that you're actually uh, interrupting the sequestering capacity of the oceans to actually um, sequest carbon. You know, all these things are situational. Economics is situational. Um, inequity is situational and the environment is situational. But we need to make sure that people understand there's multiple levers that they're working on and that shouldn't be purely in elected bodies. I'm looking at the rollout of the vaccines in Australia and they have basically been choked by politics because there's an opacity over what's happening rather than actually transparency of people saying this is what we're trying to go deliver. Claire, you must have seen as you've gone through your journey that uh, that opacity coming in and blocking from what should really be a collaborative, um, transparent environment. Absolutely. I mean, I've got an overload of wanting to answer every Go for it, go for it. <laughs> Um, but I, I actually wanted to, to, to your point, William, about the B Corp situation in America. And yes, um, within Historia Group, we've had very long-standing relationships with very big corporations. And what we found is that uh, the standards that we've tried to apply are very much, or had been in the past, very much blocked by uh, the, the need to just get the job done. And so we created, and actually, Kirsty, you raised the point about continuously improving things. We created a continuous improvement policy whereby we worked with procurement and with marketing teams to say it's not just about how well we are doing uh, when we have our annual review it's about how well you are doing and how do we work together to make sure that we are aligned about improvement to the process or the service or whatever the products that we're delivering and that we're designing with a long view in a sustainable way and that you recognize the value of the journey we're about to take. It can't be changed overnight. So this continu continuous improvement policy has to work for both sides. Um, that's kept us in business for a long time. So I thought that was a really interesting point about the B Corp piece, because often corporations have these sort of move on policies where people stay in their jobs for 18 months and then they go and do something else. So you just embedded good ideas with one particular individual who could be a key decision maker and then moved along to do something else. And you have to, you have to start all over again. So this continuous improvement policy really helps to embed best practice. And when you can show that you've delivered something that has improved, um, but, you know, both the process, efficiencies and reputation, because that's also important. You can then hopefully hang on to that when the, the new individual comes into the into the role. Um, I think also from from a sort of the standpoint of you know, values led uh, standards, we don't emphasize enough about the meritocracy associated with or that should be associated with best practice. We don't do that. And so, you know, if you think about Seaspiracy, you think about all these sort of uh, standards and all these, these marks that we have. Again, we go back to the least line of resistance because we're looking at profit over prosperity. So it's what's the least we can do to get by. 
to to create profit. Uh, and prosperity for me means that you you engage with your consumer or with your client uh, and your suppliers, and you insist that everybody tries a little bit harder in terms of the long view from a sustainable perspective. I don't think we do enough of that. I don't think we're brave enough to stand up to big corporations and government and say, this simply won't do. We all have to agree, draw a line in the sand, whatever you want to call it, um, to sort of improve the confidence associated with being really honest about good practice and rewarding people that do stick to the principles of that. Because it's more about, you know, you can be fined for not doing certain things. If you tip uh, effluent or fluids into rivers, you're, you're fined. But where's the focus on people that do a good job? Because I think that might make a difference to the way people react to constraint, um, uh, constraints. And, and I think you're, I, one, probably the most interesting thing that, that we've come across is the idea about the um, the prosperity. Yes. We're, we're, the the me culture is actually about extraction. It's my extraction. It's my gain. Prosperity is actually more of a we we concept, and it's a, and prosperity was particularly spoken about with the triple bottom line. The idea it's meant to be about the companies, shareholders. It's also meant to be about the community. It's meant to be about the workers. It it has this collective idea in it, and and I find that really interesting. If I if I looked at the pre January twenty twenty, extraction was still the majority of what people are after because. I could gain and it didn't matter if you lost. But what we learned through the pandemic was that we're actually there's a mutuality that we have in these circumstances. It's not a codependence, it's a mutuality. And the mutuality is that we need to add. We need to add to our communities. It's okay if we actually add to our wealth, but we also need to add to the wealth of the community. We need to add to the benefit of the communities. And every time we've seen people who have actually just purely extracted without adding into the community, that it's really bad. And I, I watched the movie uh, Greed, and uh, which was about um, how the high street fashion um, uh, went to went to the dogs. And it was interesting because it was a rush to the bottom based off greed. You know, that's uh, purely what the story was. And it was despicable greed. But it wasn't the greed of Wall Street. It was the greed of somebody who'd worked out how to hack the system. And we saw the 80s, 90s, and even the early thousands was very much still driven about greed. So we're seeing some change there. But I'm interested in this standards thing. You know, we've talked about B Corps, but then you've got Kickstarter who haven't gone and become a B Corp in that branding. They've actually become a, a benefit corporation. So in, in the US, under their corporate laws, they have an A-class business, a B-class business, and a C-class business. And the C-class business is the normal one. The B-class business, which is where the B Corp comes from, but it's not the brand. They just went and said, no, we're not going to take part of this branding program. We're actually going to put it in our constitution. We're not going to make it a brand mark that we're buying and licensing from somebody. We'll just register the company under those class of shares. So, you know, it's even a little bit like the startup world. Startups don't exist at law in any other part of the world except the United States. And it's a provision about uh, naive and sophisticated investors. But all around the world, we use the idea of the startup and we talk about seed money. But the corporations law in Australia doesn't cover startups. I'm pretty sure it doesn't cover it in the UK. 
It just covers it in the US. So we've picked up these standards and labels which are ineloquent for the context that we're in. And that, I think, is a really important thing, part of our globalisation, part of the idea that you've got an Apple phone or an Android phone and they're now pervasive around the world. The underlying standards aren't there. The standards that we have around food delivery services are very different in different countries. In some countries, they're staff. In other people, they're contractors who are getting run over with no benefits and no protections. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to go look at there. Um, Simon, I've kept you mute for a little while there. You, are you reeling from the fact that you've uh, added yourself, that you're really interested in standards, but you hate standards? Or, you know, does that, does that help us out here? Because I think you've got here about uh, standards and the behaviours of how they become more essential. Help us out there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know I've kind of been toying with this when I first made the statement, but actually, yes, I do believe them. I'm not anti-standard. And I think what Kersey said about collaboration is something that is really key because you're only really going to improve standards, whatever they may be, by talking to each other and finding out how those need to be refined and changed over time. And that has to be done in all sorts of um, areas of life, um, not just in building, but in food and fashion and all sorts of things. But um, yeah, I do, I do understand that standards are necessary. And I, I, again, another thing that you mentioned earlier, Mark, is about um, you know it can be innovative if you restrict yourself in some ways with certain standards when you're talking about creativity, um, because if you have certain parameters, then other ideas come out of that rather than just saying, oh, yes, we need to design a new train or we need to design a new housing estate. You need to have some limits and some restriction to that. So it actually could be a good thing. So I do agree with standards. And I think perhaps maybe being here, I'm, I actually prefer them because there are some sort of guidelines. Um, I suppose I've been upset by what's happened to me locally is this is a village and it's just having urban sprawl. And I thought that I'd kind of got away from that. Here it is on my doorstep. And it's not something that I feel very happy about, but I feel I can't voice that very well um, because of the pandemic, because of my lack of language. And I really want to do something about it. Um, and so I think that, you know, having certain standards is is really key, but they shouldn't be just um, put forward and then forgotten about. They need to be progressive. They need to be adjusted and they need to um, they need to represent what society is about, because I think one thing that. I think you kind of slightly hinted at is that some things can be um, influenced by fashion, which we think, oh, that's a standard. That's what you have. Yeah, you you go and buy an electric car because that's what everyone does because it's the right thing to do. But actually, you should be more looking into that and thinking, well, is it the right thing to do? Will the battery production and manufacturer is that the right way to go? And I think there's probably no simple answer. It's going to be a hybrid situation, like so many other things are. There's, it's not just black and white. Um, and, yeah, and so you're exactly right because. If, if you go think, of, we all understand invested energy in the built space. There's invested energy in a car. Yeah. And so if a car has a useful life of 10 or 15 years and we decide to flip it to go get a Tesla because it's the fashion item, then we've actually committed, we haven't actually paid off 
the invested energy. We haven't worked that down. It's like it hasn't depreciated in the in the crime against the planet um, when we've done that. Um, I, I do think you were, you've been saved by having a lack of language because I'm going to go across to John here at the moment because if John, so you're you're on a a building site, and there's this Frenchman who's moved to the town, and he starts to tell you in his broken English how he disagrees with what you're doing, but you're doing everything inside the regulations you're meant to do. How how good's the reception you've got with that Frenchman? Um, well, it's, it's uh, not going to work out, is it? It's not. No, absolutely no. not. You know, there's, there's, there's <laughs> You know, you've got your own principles, and there's rules there that you work to for the for the for the greater good. You know, um, and whereas I sort of told before, it's about safety and well-being and sustainability and all those good things that are just so important. Um, so yeah, no, you basically tell them to go and float. I think. Would be and, and so, what, what's fun. interesting there is, in his context, this conceptual Frenchman, his context is that he that you're doing the wrong thing by his standards, but. You're in context with the standards that apply to you. So you go, oh, there's an interesting dilemma there because it's exactly the same thing that Simon's in, that you've got the a, a context shift or, uh, you know, there's a clash in there. And uh, in the pre-conversation, Philip and I were speaking about the idea of the, um, the, the uh, European standards which used to apply to you as also being standards that you had. Now you just have to apply them if you export a product. They have to have EU standards on them just as you haven't got your own standards yourself. So so I want to go in there, John, about the you've got, you know, standards which will evolve. It's I suppose it's when they surprise you that it becomes that it hurts the business. But if you know that they exist, you've been able to cost them in then you can be compliant, can't you? It's actually the surprises that happen in business, not the things that are already known. Uh, yeah, do you know, I don't think there's anything that's ever been, that's ever sort of come in and gone, oh, wow, that's a surprise, that's going to cost me money. I think any any shift in standards has always been for the better and has always been for, for the positive. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a government standard or a change from EU to BS or whatever. I mean, I, I had, um, oh, just, you know, probably about two, three or four months ago, gone a bit off piece there, Matt, but about three or four months ago, I had a client that, um, I had a workshop with a client who had um, uh, sort of inclusivity really high in their agenda. And we had, you know, sort of a good few hour discussion around wheelchair users, people with autism, Asperger's, dementia, hearing difficulties, gender awareness, all that stuff. Um, in fact, at one point, she brought out a headset that enabled you to interpret the world through the eyes of uh, somebody with autism. Um, and since then, that has really inspired us to focus on inclusivity through our, throughout our design process. And it's set a new standard in our project because it allows everybody to enjoy the spaces that we design. So I, I think... Um, you know, it goes back to your sort of principles and being able to recognise that actually, you know, this is a, a new standard. It's a better standard. It's something that I have a responsibility to adopt um, and ultimately will, will benefit everybody else. But I just think, just going back to what you're saying about the Frenchman on the side, I mean, it's just, you know, it sounds like such a trivial situation. You can actually apply that globally. 
that that's what's happening globally, essentially, isn't it? Is that you've got one person has one standard, one you know, it has another. And how do you, how could you ever normalise all of those standards on a global level? So, John, and then, I'll, I'll share with you about the normalisation that we had to do around the design awards because we work in the UK, throughout Europe, or in, in Paris and Berlin. Um, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, they're, they're kind of similar, and also New York. And I found that I'd be talking about the same part of the design awards, but it seemed like I had culture clash. It took me three-plus years to work out how to go get language, which was non-triggering language to design mm. all around the world. And in many cases, we had to create abstractions which almost spoke about something that they were familiar with. But it was kind of like, oh, Mark's from Australia. He doesn't really know the exact word that we use. So I so I had some liberty to actually have mid-language. But there was a dramatic, you know, issue where people thought that you had to have one definition and only one definition of, of something. And that's the thing. There's a book I've got here on the shelf. I'll, I'll actually include a link to it. It's a, it's a, it's called Theatre Words. And so I used to work in theatre. And as you tour through Europe, you'd probably go through uh, ten different languages. So if you needed a st- stage screw, you'd open up the book and you'd see the word stage screw, and then the person in Poland would see their word and go, Ah, I know what you need. Or you'd say, I need a trapdoor, and they'd get that. And like that, <laughs> Babelfish was what we needed. And the Babelfish yeah. applies to standards as well. But when standards, they're often contextual from history because there's certain types of industrial accidents that happened in one country. There's fire standards in New York because of the textile um, industry fires that took place and the people who died, they don't exist elsewhere. You know, there's lots and lots of different standards that exist for different reasons. It's things like the aviation industry, which has global standards because Apparently, planes falling out of the air happens all over the world. Um, so, you know, it, not not that frequently since uh, the DC-10s have stopped, but, you know, we've had those problems where they've had uh, global implications. So, Kirsty, I know that you've got your mic off, but after you've actually said your thing, I want to go back to you about creating a standard for a corporation in the form of their brands and their livery because we know how to go do this. We know how to be pragmatic, but help me out. You, you've come off mic for something else i was just going to make a kind of post-brexit point um uh which doesn't apply to priest mangu because we're not registered architects but um i know that you know a lot of uh architecture practices have had to register in ireland for example in order that they will be able to you know use their qualifications and therefore you know, the evidence of their them meeting standards um, to continue working kind of freely in Europe. So, you know, I guess it has a, you know, there are professional implications to the meeting of professional standards. Yeah, and, and so you wind out, um, there's some things where people are realising what they have to change because, and these changes were done too to the businesses. You know, I don't think a lot of businesses that were in architecture would have voted for saying, let's go break up something that gives us efficiency and portability of our practice across a couple of hundred million people rather than less than 100 million people. You know, so so that's what happens when government interventions come in there. So 
I know we've been through lots of lots of things that we've spoken about here. Are there any solutions? You know, I think, John, you're suggesting that standards are useful. Simon, you're getting to the point that standards are useful. I think, Philip, that you've got that the standards are useful, but there may just be disparity between an apprentice out of Germany, an apprentice out of, out of the UK or an apprentice out of France. Claire in the recycling world. And Kirsty, are there, are there some solutions that you can see here as we go to wrap up or is it that we just have to continually work hard, which is the way that we used to do it? I love when I throw to everybody and no one speaks. It's brilliant. So, Claire, go for it. Yeah, help us out here. I think we know that the, there are the legal standards, then there are the, the, the want-to-have or the, the um, should-haves, the ISOs, all those things that basically help us to do business and uh, and uh, assure potential customers. We're going back to self-imposed standards again. And I think like all things, as we emerge from this pandemic, if we really focus on those values-led ideas, our own self-imposed standards, and share those with our customers, I think, and, and, and with our, our employees, employers, our, our suppliers, um, it's like these virtuous circles. I'm uh, probably sounding a little bit like a hippie, but I don't mean to. I feel that we really have to all try harder to uh, practice what we preach. Those self-imposed standards, let's face it, the, the inconsistencies of uh, implementation of of standards is something that we've all talked about here. The fact that a lot of people do the very least. So if we all focus on doing the best we can and going beyond the expectation of customers or or, or whatever it may be, then things will change. Um, I, I don't think it's always about being rewarded, although. I did speak earlier about sort of meritocracy and sort of rewarding best practice. I think if, if we can try to normalize it a little bit more um, and, and uh, you know, focus on self-imposed standards, it will become the norm. Um, it'll become part of your sort of leading competitive edge if you just practice it as a way of life. Uh, I think we should try a little harder to do that. And the normalizing example that I could give would be um, compostable coffee cups, single-use coffee cups, compostable. If that was a regulated standard that everybody had to do, then there's no benefit whether one cafe does it or the other one does. And so, so you wind up then where you have a level playing field and it has a benefit to our community. The question is, are those coffee cups then going into landfill or are they going into compost? And, you know, so that's where there's the part two that's in there. But we know that we can actually create a level playing field by saying there's a standard, everybody's got that, that same burden or the same benefit that's in there. Yeah, Philip, you, um, uh, you were putting your hand up there. Um, yeah, it's really just a just a thought um, to take on a, a little bit further from the the sort of the professional standards that uh, we, we discussed earlier. Um, you know, and of course, uh, people like electricians, you know, need to need to meet a certain uh, professional standard, as do architects. But um, I'm I'm kind of just struck a little bit by the irony that that one of the issues that the design industry has is that, uh, of course, designers don't have to 
um, reach that or attain a, a standard, uh, even a minimum standard. Um, and I just wonder, maybe uh, that, that could be a subject for a debate uh, in at, at some stage in the future. Look, I, I really welcome going into that because it, it it's interesting that Architects are a regulated profession generally because they made things that killed people because buildings fell over and they had to put some regulations in there. Um, designers in most cases aren't thought to be de- doing things that are detrimental to the community, but we know that the way that things have been fa- uh, you know, programmed into our phones, that there's actually um, psychological damage that's happening to people. It could have been done better. It, it hasn't been done. We know that the way that... Um, different services are designed that they've been done in a detrimental way. We know in prison systems the way that the physical spaces have been designed are actually uh, crimes against humanity. We we know these things. There should be standards there, and so that would be a great conversation to follow up with. Everybody, we have on a little bit over the hour here. I'm going to be like an auctioneer and I'm going to try to wrap up here. Are there any bids that I've got from anybody? You say, oh, before we go, I've got to say this. Please put your hand up. Otherwise, it's going once. No, there's no hands. Is going twice. Everybody, that's the third time. I'm going to close this out here. This was a fantastic conversation because what seems like a really boring topic has had us all animated talking about the dilemmas of it. We understand where standards are. We love them. We hate them. We'd like to work out how to progress. But what we have been able to go deal with is how do we actually have a pragmatic conversation rather than dogmatic? And I do appreciate you loaning me your minds while we go do that. Everybody, thank you very much for your time. And um, let's hope we all stand by our principles and our standards. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye now. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Thanks, Mark.